morning I want to ask a question, and that is, what do you trust in? What do you look to for comfort? Where do you go to for strength? When I was in high school, I trusted in my academic results, uh, in year 12 in particular, to make me look good, uh, to get me into university so that I could get uh, the degree uh, and then the job and then the income and the money and then hopefully that would enable me to attract a spouse and, and have kids. Uh, I trusted in my academic results at that stage of my life. So you can imagine how devastated I was when my academic results, my enter score, was nowhere near what I hoped it would be, and I didn't get into any of my university preferences. Bitterly disappointed. You would have thought I'd learned my lesson after that experience, but when I was a bit older and a young adult now... um, Married, somehow able to attract someone despite the failure. <laughs> uh, I, I trusted in my ability to uh, get a, a good job. I was a pastor at a, at a big church, at a successful church, uh, and to grow a, a big and fruitful ministry. So uh, you can imagine how humiliating it was when after just three years in this job, I burned out, was a kind of um, a complete wreck, had a major health collapse, and I just, because I couldn't keep up the pace at this bigger and better church. Where do you look to for strength? Where do you look to for comfort? What do you trust in and rely on for comfort and strength? As we come to the text this morning, I want to paint a picture of the kingdom of Judah. We're going to be looking, by the way, at Isaiah 40. I think it was page 581. It'd be great if you have a Bible, whether on your phones or one nearby, that you can turn over to page 581 and ask the question, well, where did uh, the kingdom of Judah, the people of Israel, look to for comfort? What did they rely on for strength? The the context here is uh, in the uh, kind of 7th to 5th century BC, before Christ. And uh, in this context, the kingdom of Judah was under threat from uh, the Assyrians. Uh, And so where were they going to look to for comfort? Where were they going to look to for strength? Well, it turns out that they trusted in the empires of Egypt and Babylon to protect them from uh, the kingdom of Assyria. So you can imagine how devastated they were when the kingdom of Babylon that they were trusting in and relying on ended up double-crossing them and destroying them, raising the whole city to the ground and carrying them off into exile. Where do we look to? For comfort, where do we look to for strength? Uh, I was reading the Weekend uh, Australian, the magazine, uh, uh, just last weekend, uh, and the cover story uh, is a story with the title Saving Lola. And and I want to ask the question, where do we as a culture look to for comfort? Where do we as a culture look to for strength? Uh, This is the cover story of the magazine, uh, Weekend Australian, and it's written uh, from a mother. And I want to read some of it to you from the start. She says, fentanyl kills one American every seven minutes. Just take that in. Over 100,000 fentanyl overdoses were reported in 2022. This year's figures will be higher. It's a crisis of epic proportions turning kids into zombies if they survive. Fentanyl is 50 to 100 times stronger than heroin. And if you have an addictive bone in your body, it gets you in its clutches, wrestles you to the ground, and doesn't let go. 
I know this because trying to keep my fentanyl-addicted daughter alive has become a full-time job. I'm usually pretty good at finding some light in the dark tunnels, but that persistent Aussie battler spirit has been sorely tested of late. Take one morning in 2021 when I received a call from Lola, then 33, begging me to come down to the Burbank jail to bail her out to the tune of thousands of dollars after she'd been slapped with felony charges for fentanyl possession with intent to sell. My flower painting and baby loving Lola went to private schools, including a stint at Loretto Kirribilli in Sydney. And she graduated with honours from the Otis College of Art and Design in Los Angeles. She is loved to pieces, was taught manners, and went on to become a successful artist. Where is it that people in our culture are looking to for comfort? What are we relying on for strength? I love that she points out that it was private schools, Loretto Kirribilli. There's a proverb that says something like, uh, a man's wealth is his castle and people trust themselves safe and secure. Or not so for Lola. So where do you turn to for comfort? That, that was the question in Isaiah's time. These people who were in exile, suffering under a brutal uh, regime of the Babylonians. Uh, if you were to ask King David, who was presided over a very successful kingdom. Uh, If you were to ask him, where do you turn to for comfort? I, I believe that he would have said, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for my God is with me. Your rod and your staff... Comfort me. That's where King David looked to for his comfort. Despite all of his wealth, despite all of his power and prowess, where did he look to for comfort? To the Lord, the maker of heavens and earth. There's a guy called Philip Keller uh, who has written a book uh, called A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. Uh, And and he reflects on this psalm uh, because he himself was a shepherd in East Africa. And in the land just next to his, uh, this land was rented out to a tenant shepherd and he didn't take very good care of his sheep. His land was overgrazed, the sheep were thin, diseased by parasites and attacked by animals. Keller especially remembers how the, the sheep in this paddock would kind of line up at the fence towards his and they would gaze longingly in the direction of his green grass and look at his healthy sheep almost as if they longed to be delivered from their abusive shepherd and longed to be brought under the care of a good and loving shepherd. That was Philip. That, that picture, if you can uh, picture those uh, emaciated sheep longing and seeing that the grass indeed was greener on the other side of the fence, uh, is actually a wonderful picture for the state of the Israelites in exile in Babylon. Uh, The story of the Israelites is that they had been slaves and captives in Egypt. If you know the book of 
uh, Exodus. And they had a shepherd. His name was Pharaoh. And he was a tyrant. He was a bully. He was an abusive shepherd. But uh, God is a loving uh, shepherd. And as, as a father, he came to their rescue. And he crushed Pharaoh in the bottom of the sea. He destroyed them, overthrew them. And he brought them out into green pastures called the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And then he gave them his law and the Ten Commandments. This is how to stay safe. This is where the paddock is. This is where the grass is green. But they again and again turned away from their loving shepherd and heavenly father and God sent prophets to warn them, don't do this. Don't go this way. You'll end up like those emaciated sheep. But they didn't listen. And so that's where they found themselves. At this uh, point in the 7th century BC, you can see up there uh, in Isaiah's time, the prophet that we're looking at, 745 uh, BC, uh, they were living in the shadow of the Assyrian Empire. Uh, So they grew rapidly. The purple bit on the map here uh, is uh, the size of the Assyrian Empire in 745 BC, but the green bit is the size of the empire only 30 years later in 714 BC. And so this Assyrian Empire, and they had one focus, right? Like all kind of world powers, what's the focus? World domination. And here they are, and you can see that little brown bit down there at the bottom. Guess which kingdom that is? That's the kingdom of Judah. And so they have kind of this massive empire at their door, but just south of the kingdom of Judah, can you see there what that kingdom is. It's the kingdom of Egypt. And so this is what you call being um, uh, caught between a rock and a hard place. Uh, And here they are, the monkey in the middle. So where are they going to look to for comfort? Where are they going to look to for strength? The Lord, the good shepherd who had delivered them already from the power of Pharaoh, or are they going to turn back to Egypt where Pharaoh was? Well, if you know the story, you know what they did. They didn't look to God. They looked to Egypt. God pleaded with them not to. If you know Isaiah chapter 30, verse 1, he says, Woe to the obstinate children, to those who carry out plans that are not mine, forming an alliance but not by my spirit, heaping sin upon sin. Those who go down to Egypt without consulting me, who look for help to Pharaoh's protection, to Egypt's shade for refuge. And then he says this, but Pharaoh's protection will be to your shame. I mean, don't they remember Pharaoh? It's kind of a big story. We're thousands of years later and we remember Pharaoh. But here they are going to him for protection, going to him. He says, Egypt's shade will bring you disgrace. And so it's just like the drug fentanyl that kind of, and and it's just like, Uh, Satan himself, who kind of disguises himself a wolf in sheep's clothing, or or the um, uh, the what is it? Jesus talks about uh, the dark angel that makes himself look like an angel of light. Uh, This is what's happening here. Uh, Thomas Brooks says Satan promises the best, but pays the worst. He promises honor and pays with disgrace. He promises pleasure and pays with pain. He promises profit and pays with loss. He promises life and pays with death. And so they took the bait. 
And they turned to Egypt and it all went pear-shaped and they were carried off to Babylon in exile. But Yahweh will never give up on his kids. He is a loving and compassionate father. Even more so than Lola's mum with her fentanyl-addicted daughter. She says, trying to keep my fentanyl-addicted daughter alive has become a full-time job. Well, how much more does God the Father love his kids? So try to imagine this Lola, uh, Lola's mum visiting uh, her daughter in prison, heartbroken, bereft at all of her self-inflicted wounds, visiting her in drug rehab to try and keep her alive for one more day. Well, that's, that's the picture of the God that we have in Isaiah 40, except he's not going to visit his people in jail. He's not going to visit his people in drug rehab. He's going to visit his people in exile, in Babylon, under this world superpower. And look at what he says to them in chapter 40, verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed. And so this morning we're going to be looking at a message, the message of comfort that God brings to his people, emaciated, poor, beaten up, abused, struggling. And we're going to look at three ways in which God comforts his people in the passage this morning. And the first way that he comforts his people is that he comforts them with his pardon. Would you have a look at again at verse 1? Comfort, comfort my people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed. And note this, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. We know that God is holy. We know from the story of the Garden of Eden in Genesis 1 to 3 that God cannot tolerate evil and rebellion in his presence. And so just like God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden, God brought his people into his promised land and he wanted it to work and he told them how to stay there, but they rebelled and they resisted. And so again, God, just like Adam and Eve, cast them out of the garden, cast them out of the promised land to the Babylonian exile. But now here, he's bringing them comfort. I don't know if you picked up on the last um, line in verse 2. It says that they've paid double for their sins. Now that, that sounds a bit um, weird that God, God's kind of paying them back twice as much as what they deserve. But, but that's not what's going on here. The, the image here is like imagine a piece of paper folded in two. And this side of the paper is Israel's sins and what they've deserved and the other side is the punishment that has fit and if you fold that uh, paper perfectly over God is saying it's done you did the crime and now you've done the time you're not going to stay one more day longer in exile God and, and of course this points us forward ultimately to the person of Jesus Christ where we've done the crime but Jesus did the time on the cross all of our sins paid for in full on the cross, not a day more, not a day less, paid in full. When Jesus died, he said, it is finished. Now, this is a source of great comfort. This is a source of great comfort to me. Uh, I don't know about you, but I stumble and fall all the time. I rebel against the God that I love. And I wonder, is this, 
Is this, could this be punishment for my sin? How on earth could God persevere with me after doing this for the 10,000th time? But I remember to myself, and I have up on my wall the picture of Rembrandt's picture of the prodigal son embracing his boy, covered in pig poo and muck. And I remember, I remind myself that while I was still sinning, Christ died for me. In other words, he didn't wait for me to clean up my act. He didn't wait for the sheep to get well fed. And, and, and no, I mean, Psalm 23 says, he anoints my head with oil. He didn't wait for me to get my act together. He died for me while I was still sinning. And so now that I'm still sinning, why would he change the rules? Why would the basis be any different? No, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. My hope is not in myself. I don't look to me. I look to Christ. And that is a source of immense comfort for people who sin. And we need to remind ourselves of this again and again and again. God's relentless love for us, his grace and his forgiveness. It's a comfort for people who sin, but it's also a comfort for people who suffer. Many of us think, well, you know, I've been going through my phone um, looking at audiobooks on Spotify and, and, and there's so much like self-help type things which is like, if you can just measure up, then, you know, then if you can just perform, then you'll, you'll get the blessing, you'll get the goods, which is just another form of, of legalism and, and a terrible burden. And so when we stuff up, when we suffer, we, we sort of think, well, what am I doing wrong? I, I, I need to get like, I mean, one of them caught my attention. I don't know if it was like 10, 10 steps to the perfect body or I don't know. I can't remember what it was, but, 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 but it was like, oh, I think I, I need that. But, but it's the, Okay, that was off the cuff. I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> Whoops. But, but, but what I'm saying is it's just the burden of law that we have to kind of pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. And when we suffer, we, in, we instinctively think, well, I've done something wrong. I need to get my act together. But that's not how it works in God's economy. And so God's forgiveness, God's pardon is a great comfort to us when we suffer. And, and just one example of this is a guy, Horatio Spafford, uh, in 1871. He was going to take a trip, a holiday with his um, wife and his four girls to America, but he had something that kind of uh, kept him uh, in England. So he just sent his family on ahead of him. And on the way from England to America, the ship sank and it, the telegram arrived a few days later that all of four of his girls were dead and only his wife survived. Devastating. And so as quick as he could, he got on the next ship to arrive in America. And when he got to the spot where his daughters were sunk, he wrote his now famous hymn, It Is Well. It is well with my soul. And I want you to hear the third verse and the comfort that he had in his sorrow. He writes, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh my soul. Do you see the source of his comfort in his suffering and in his sorrow? It's the pardon for sin in Christ. So firstly, God comforts his people by his pardon. 
but there's more. Verses 3 to 5, God comforts his people with his presence. Not only does our sin bring us a sense of guilt and condemnation, but it separates us from God, as we've already said. The way that this worked for the Israelites is that the dwelling place of God was in the temple. That was the house of God in the Holy of Holies. And and God could bear it no longer after warning them again and again uh, that they kept on sinning. And so he allowed the Babylonians to come and to raise it all to the ground and he removed them from his presence a long way away in Babylon, away from the house of God, away from the temple of the Holy Spirit. And the problem for the Israelites was that they knew that they were a long way away from home. So if I go back to this map You can see where the kingdom of Judah is, and then you can see um, by this stage uh, the Babylonians had overthrown the Assyrians, and they were the world power. And you can see they were brought into exile here, from here where the temple was in Jerusalem. And between them and Babylon was a vast desert with high mountains and valleys and rocks and, and a huge chasm between them and the presence of God, which was then located geographically. And so now you understand the meaning of verse 3 in Isaiah 40 uh, and, and God's people in Babylon, where it says, In the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley will be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And to me, this is like the Old Testament version of the parable of the prodigal son when the, when the father runs out, when he sees his son from a long distance off and, and he's, he's bedraggled and he stinks of pig and, and he's smelly and he's made a complete mess and he's covered in shame. And when the father sees him a long way off, he runs out to meet him and he throws his arms around him and he covers him with kisses and he cleans him up and he says, bring the best robe and put it on him. Kill the fattened calf. Let's have a party and celebrate for this son of mine was lost and now he's found. He was blind, but now he sees. This is the heart of the father. First, the heart filled with compassion goes out to his people who are suffering with self-inflicted wounds. And then he runs out to save them and to bring them home. This is what we see in this story. And friends, this is the message of Christmas. This is why we're looking at this passage during Advent. The message of Christmas is God saying, I'm coming to get you. I'm coming to save you. I've had enough. I want you to come home. I'm going to clean you up. I'm going to put you in the best clothes. I'm going to put a ring on your finger, sandals on your feet, and celebrate and party. I'm coming to get you. And, of course, he did it when he came from heaven down to earth. Into the mayhem, into the muck, into the manger. Surrounded by shepherds, the last, the least, and the lost. The message of Christmas is, I'm coming to get you. You know, I've reflected a lot on Ezekiel 34, 11 to 12, over the last year or two, where God says, I myself will search for my sheep and I will seek them out. I will rescue them from all the places to which they've been scattered on a day of clouds and thick 
darkness. One of my repeated prayers is for all of the Lolas in Cottesloe. There are so many Lolas in Cottesloe who have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And our prayer is that the Good Shepherd through us will go out to search them and to seek them and to save them in the name of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the heart of the Father who comforts his people with his presence. I'm coming to get you. Finally, in verses 6 to 8, God comforts us with his promises. I don't know how much a, a thing uh, New Year's resolutions are these days. Uh, they've grown a bit thin on me. Uh, every year we make New Year's resolutions and every year we break them. Uh, every time well, we sin, we stumble, we fall, we make promises and then what do we do? We break them. I think that's what Isaiah is talking about when he says, all men, all women are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. It would be nice to think that we have within us the resources to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and to get things sorted, right? It would be nice to think that we had the resources to do that within ourselves. Um, and, and, and that's how our government, that's how our economy, that's how our nation works, that, that we can do this. I mean, it's the Tower of Babel, right? We were looking at the Tower of Babel a few weeks ago. We can do this by our own ingenuity. But the, the lesson of the Old Testament for the Israelites is that they can't. They kept trying again and again and again. God had given them his commandments to stay in his heart and they failed again and again and again. But the good news is that God keeps all of his commitments. He's the only one who keeps his promises. And that's why it says the grass withers and the flowers fall. That's us. But the word of our God stands forever. God keeps all of his promises And you can look in the Old Testament to see how many times he promised a saviour, how many times he promised that the son of David would be born in Bethlehem. Hundreds and hundreds of years, but God keeps his promises. I'm coming to get you. I was only six years old in 1989, So I don't remember, but some of you will remember that there was a horrendous earthquake, 8.2 on the Richter scale, that flattened the country of Armenia, killing over 25,000 people. Uh, There was a story that came out that in the midst of all the chaos and destruction, uh, one father rushed to his son's school only to find a massive pile of rubble where his son's school Laid, And so with a deep sense of dread, he went to the place where he knew his son's class was, which also was a pile of rubble, and he just began to hurl bricks and wood and rubble with all of his might. The father had promised his kid that he would always be there for him, and so it was this promise to his son that moved his arms and motivated his heart to keep pulling away all of these piles of rubble. And after many hours, some of the other parents in the school, they came to him and they said, look, just give up. It's been too long. It's too late. It's, it's time for you to give up. 
but he wouldn't, and he just kept on going. After several more hours, the fire chief came to him, and he said, look, there are electric explosions everywhere. There are fires happening everywhere. This is far too dangerous for you to stay. You need to give up. But he kept on going for many more hours. Eventually, they called the, the police in the area, and, and the police said, look, it's over. You're endangering yourself. You're endangering others. You just need to go home and leave it to us. But he kept on going for 8, 12, 24, 36 hours. And then in the 38th hour of digging, he pulled back a piece of rubble and he heard his son's voice. It wasn't long before he had his son in his arms and they were reunited. And the boy said to his father this, he said, Dad, I knew you'd come. I told my friends that you'd come. You promised me that you'd come and you did it. Friends, that's the heart of the father for you this morning. That's the message of Christmas. I'm coming to get you. I'm coming to save you. If you're under a pile of rubble this morning, whether it's your health, whether it's your relationships, whether it's your circumstances, know that the sovereign almighty God of the universe says to you this Christmas, I'm coming to get you. I'm coming to get you. For the the Israelites, it was that they were in Babylon under a massive world superpower with a great big desert between them. And God said, I'm coming to get you. At Christmas, the chasm was between us, between heaven and earth. But God, in sending Jesus, his son, punched a hole through that barrier and came to us in the baby Jesus. And he said, I'm coming to get you. And then you know what? The story of Easter is that the Lord Jesus went down into death and he took our sins with him. And he punched a hole through death into eternal life and he rose again. I'm coming to get you. And the story of Pentecost is that he said, I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come to you. And he poured out his Holy Spirit. And now he says to us, I want you to be the hands and feet, the body of Christ, and to go out to the likes of Anjo in Compassion Australia and to be the heart of Christ and the hands of Christ and to say to the people who are in darkness, to the scattered sheep through the likes of Compassion Australia, give life, Wakambizi, your family, your friends, to be saying in the power of the Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I'm coming to get you. Amen. I want to finish with the words that capture this from a guy who's written a song called Reckless Love by Corey Asbury. And in the bridge he says to God, there's no shadow you won't light up, mountain you won't climb up coming after me. There's no wall you won't kick down, lie you won't tear down coming after me. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Oh, it chases me down, flights till I'm found, leaves the 99. I couldn't earn it. I don't deserve it. Still, you give yourself away. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. I pray by the power of the Spirit you might know this love in Christ today. Can I get an amen? Amen. Let's stand and sing together.